But you don't have your headphones. Just uh, get the, the level for the for the click in, in each of your mixes, yeah? We had a little bit of a glitch, but we're finally now about to start recording the Whistleblower album. Okay, lads, here we go. I see the world as a very difficult place. Cormac Brannock is a musician. A world which suffers from human rights infringements, transgressions. Some of you may know him. I think that's most likely a direct result of what happened. In 1976, his family was torn apart by an event that changed the course of Irish legal history. Gawdy bank and post office officials are still trying to find out how much money was taken in the raid in the Cork Mail outside Dublin this morning. A mail train from Dublin to Cork was robbed by an armed gang. Four men have been charged with the robbery of more than £220,000 from the Cork to Dublin mail train last Wednesday. Three men, Brian McNally, Nicky Kelly and Oscar Brannock, were arrested, tried and convicted for the crime. Cormac's brother Oscar received a sentence of 12 years penal servitude for a crime he didn't commit. I was tortured and beaten and intimidated in a tunnel underneath the Bridewell police station. They were all very shook up. I saw marks and bruises on their bodies. Cormac was only 13 at the time, and the event had a devastating effect on him and his family. At the time, I thought that it was a, just a big bad mistake and a bad dream that would go away. But as time went on, I realised that this was a serious matter which was going to impact on the family. The case became one of the most infamous to pass through the Irish court system. The Salins Main train robbery case is, to my mind, the most serious miscarriage of justice that has occurred in my lifetime. Forty years later, both brothers are still suffering the effects of this traumatic event, but in different ways. Two different stories born out of the same event. Flip sides of the same coin. Hi, Cormac. Hey, Frank, how are you doing? How are you? Welcome to On the Funshaga. Thank you very much. Morning. Music for me was my, my, my saviour through those difficult times. You know, were it not for music, um, I greatly fear what would have happened to me. This is the voice of Cormac Brannock. Cormac is one of Ireland's leading musicians. This is what he sounds like. However, whilst Cormac was at the height of his musical success and was shining in the limelight of music for decades, throughout this time he had been harbouring a hidden and troubled background, a dark personal history that's haunted him for over 40 years. 1976, uh, March 31, which was six days after my 13th birthday, um, there was a mail train robbery from Cork to Dublin, which was robbed uh, by the IRA. And my brother was detained, during which time he signed uh, a statement under duress uh, and after being uh, assaulted and beaten uh, by members of the Garda Síochána. He's convicted for 12 years penal servitude. After a year and a half, he was released following a campaign involving Amnesty International. Nine months later, the court comes back and gives its reasoning, but absolves the Gardaí further from any wrongdoing. 
and then there's the long road for an answer. I mean, the whole period lasted from 1976 to 1993. There was no public inquiry set up. The government refused to set one up. Despite calls by Amnesty International and the ICCL, Irish Council of Civil Liberties, and other human rights groups, um, the court which sentenced my brother um, is still in operation. It's a non-jury court, and it also has been criticised by Amnesty and by the UN. The event Cormac is talking about became known simply as the Salins case. In March 1976, the Cork to Dublin train was stopped on the tracks at Salins County Kildare by armed and masked men. Over £220,000 was taken from the mail carriage. The money was never recovered. Within days, four men were arrested and after numerous police detentions, they signed confessions admitting to the robbery and they were charged. The problem was, the men claimed they had been beaten and tortured by police and had been forced to sign these confessions, and they all maintained their innocence. Other than these confessions, there was no evidence linking the men to the crime. Even though the IRA later claimed responsibility, three of the four men were still tried and convicted. It later transpired that there was a secret unit within Angarda whose existence was denied at the highest levels of government. This unit used violence and torture to acquire confessions from suspects, and it was this unit that forced the men to sign the confessions. The event took its toll on everyone involved, and as with most traumatic events, a wider circle of people were deeply affected. I think it has cast a dark shadow on um, me and my family. There are scars that we all have. Me in particular, um, I don't sleep well. My memory is quite poor. I dream quite badly. I suffer from nightmares, um, flashbacks. It's affected my relationships. I have been diagnosed as suffering from uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. It's in my it's in my DNA, it's in my body tissue, it's, I mean, I uh, have spent hours and hours and hours and hours of writing uh, about it, uh, crying about it, and yet it wasn't me who was arrested or detained or tortured, but I certainly feel uh, the effects of all of that, and we all in the family feel it differently. I describe myself as very much being um, an unwilling participant in this whole event. Maybe that'll be a good place to drop in. What do you think, Dara? I was only 13 okay. when all of this happened to me and my family. I've tried everything from therapy to writing to creating art projects to try and deal with my trauma. Now I'm going back to what I know. I'm making an album to tell my story. Okay, everybody good to go. And it's called The Whistleblower. The album is an attempt by me to address some of the feelings and emotions surrounding the fallout of a train robbery in 1976. The title Whistleblower obviously has um, different meanings. It's obviously a reference to the train sound and the train itself. 
Secondly, it's a reference to my whistle playing. I play the low whistle and high whistles. And thirdly, because I want the public to know that there is still very much uh, an event uh, which um, still needs to be uh, explained and addressed. It's 42 years on, um, but it's still very much part of my life. And I, I'm still trying to, to overcome those, those difficulties. The best part for me to be able to express that is musically, since uh, music was my, my, my saviour through those difficult times. Oscar. Hello, Frank. How are you doing? Pleasure. Good to meet you. Come on in. I couldn't remember, was it 10 or 12? Are you still recording or what? Uh, kind of, yeah. Right. People listening would think it's all about a train robbery and people uh, who are tried for a train robbery. But for me, it's not about that at all. To me, it's about a conspiracy to frame people. And the people who did that to date have got away with it. That's what it's about. Oscar is Cormac's brother. He's 13 years older than Cormac. He was 26 when this happened. Even though this event affected the entire family, the intensity of the experience landed on Oscar. Miscarriage of justice suggests that it is an error. What happened to me was not an error. It was deliberate. Let me explain. I was arrested in March 1976. I was held for 48 hours and I was released without questioning in relation to the train robbery that occurred on the 31st of March in Salins County, Kildare. I was re-arrested and I was held uh, during an eight-day period and then was charged with the participation in the robbery on the basis of no evidence at all other than a false statement that was concocted by Gardaí and that I was forced to sign. And during that period, to force me to do that, I was tortured and beaten and intimidated and then was charged with the participation in the robbery. And the case was sent to the Special Criminal Court, which has its own rules and regulations, and which numerous judges refused to sit on. And I was tried twice in that court over a period of a year, during which I was sentenced to 12 years penal servitude. I then initiated with others, the family and so forth, and friends, an international campaign was supported by Amnesty for my release. I had both my sentence and conviction quashed in the Court of Criminal Appeal in 1980. I then continued a civil action which I had initiated against named Gardaí and the state for oppression, uh, for basically for framing me. The event had huge repercussions for the Brannock family. After Oscar's arrest, the authorities came down very hard on the entire family. They quickly became public figures. Their lives were turned upside down overnight. Everyone in the family was affected. However, on the shoulders of 13-year-old Cormac, it was just too much. Before, he was just like any ordinary 13, you know, 14-year-old who were noticing girls who were... Um, playing music, it was all fun. We were going to festivals, we were playing all, it was great. This is Frank Perry. Frank was one of Cormac's best friends as a child. They went to secondary school together and they played music together. Frank really saw the change that occurred in Cormac 
and the pressure he was under once this event came into his life. And then all of a sudden, like, this dark cloud comes over Cormac. It's, it's like, serious. But he was coming from, you know, massive pressure. Massive, massive pressure in his life. Everything that he wanted to be was taken away from in, in, in a very short period of time. And, you know, it's a credit to him that he didn't end up on a dark, dark road. Cormac got lost in music. Cormac became obsessed with music. And the obsession with music was to, to find maybe an escape route from what he knew he was going to have to go home to have to be followed, uh, be approached, be stopped. He could immerse himself in it. And every time he came out of music, he knew that once it stopped, life was really going to hit him, where we were all going home to loving families, to tea, to dinner and stuff like that. He was going to to a political turmoil. I remember those days where I would just sit down and play music for hours and hours and hours a day. I was the dictator of the musical world. It's something I could control. Where around me, other events I could not control at all. If the special brands are sitting outside your house 24-7, watching where you're going, saying things to you, intimidating you along the way, and you know that wherever you go, there may be somebody watching you. So would a bit of paranoia set in, definitely. You know, and that, that would have been a natural reaction. He just didn't want to go home. He wanted to play and play and play. It's very, very hard. The Bible says turn the other cheek, but when it happens to you, you know, how many people are able to say, well, look, let's move on and get on with life. But he did it through music, and that's why I suppose his music is so special, that when people say you play from the heart with Cormac Bannock, it definitely comes from the heart. Cormac and Oscar have brought me on a little trip down memory lane. Well, Chancery Lane to be precise. To a location they both remember only too well. We have our backs to the forecourt. We're in Chancery Lane. And in front of us is the Bridewell. And beside it, the District Court. And it was to this uh, building that I was brought on the 5th of April 1976. Uh, And I was brought in the front there. In between the two buildings here, uh, the, the laneway here, uh, underneath that is where the tunnel runs from the uh, Bridewell to the District Court. And it's uh, in the tunnel that I was first uh, tortured before being brought back into the main uh, prison section and uh, tortured in a locker room up there. Cormac also remembers this day. It has a significant memory for him too. I was at home that day with my mother and for some strange reason, the, the lights were all off in the house. Um, clearly, we had electricity because the TV was on, and that's when the news came through. And it, it, was, as if, it was as if my mother was trying to hide, you know, um, hoping, I suppose, that, you know, the, this terrible nightmare would stop. Yeah, and I, I witnessed that. I was with her, and I felt, you know, it was like being in a cave, you know, trying to hide, etc. when that news came out. It was very very traumatic to hear that your brother was in the hospital and you knew he was beaten and you knew he was beaten by the guards because he was in police custody so so, and you didn't know how badly he was beaten you heard it was concussion and you know that has implications (laughs) 
Four men have been charged with the robbery of more than £220,000 from the Cork to Dublin mail train last Wednesday. All were remanded in custody to Dublin District Court tomorrow. I was uh, taken out of my cell in the middle of the night and brought down to a tunnel underneath the bridewell where they started to uh, beat me. And uh, they wanted to know my movements on the day of the robbery. Uh, and they said, does anybody know that? And I said, yes, my wife. And then they said, well, you don't want to drag her into it now, do you? Which was, to me, a clear implication. Keep this up and we'll arrest her as well. And I've subsequently uh, discovered that various other people had their family members. Anybody they mentioned in an alibi was arrested. So they proceeded to beat me and uh, I was at some stage brought up to a locker room where the beatings continued again. Threats and all the rest of it. And uh, eventually... I don't know how long it took, but eventually I said, OK, I will sign a statement. Because in my mind, I couldn't see how they could possibly use the statement to convict me when I wasn't there, when I had proof that I was somewhere else. As well as that, the evidence of the beatings and the refusal to give me a solicitor and so forth. I didn't believe that there was any court that would accept that. I picked up the pen and they said, right, write down what happened. And I said, my hand was shaking, I couldn't even hold the pen for a while. And I said, how can I, how can I do that when I don't know what happened? So they said, that was no good. They threw the table aside and laid into me for another period of time. And uh, eventually I said, uh, OK, I'll give you a statement. So then I sat in front of them. I couldn't think of what to say. So the guards started to concoct the statement. I went into Dublin and I'd say, yes, I went into Dublin on the such and such date, on the such and such date. And they would keep repeating what it is they wanted to hear. Obviously, as an adult, you know exactly what they're up to. But part of your mind is, is saying, this is what they want me to say. If I say that, the beatings will stop. So that's what happens. But when they're getting serious, they just come in and lay into you. And how bad were the beatings? They were bad enough to get me to do, to, to, turn, to turn myself against myself, if you know what I mean. The, the documented accounts of the interviews which occurred at the time are quite worrying in terms of the scale of the abuse that is said to have occurred. We have those accounts from, you know, court transcripts and so on. This is Dr Vicky Conway. She's a professor at Dublin City University. Vicky is a leading academic and researcher on policing in Ireland, and she's a member of the Policing Authority and has also served on the Commission for the Future of Policing. I mean, evidence also suggests that even the written statements that were produced, they were added to by, by others, presumably by Gardaí. Um, so the written statements were not, you know, off one hand. Um, so multiple people had contributed to that. I've interviewed a lot of retired guards, many of whom would have been in the special branch, and something they would have said is that the Special Criminal Court would have accepted evidence from them that they would have difficulty convincing a jury of. Um, so again, the judiciary being within that system perhaps enabled um, certain convictions to be secured that might not otherwise have been secured. I was working as a criminal defence solicitor uh, in, in Dublin. This is the voice of Pat McCartan. Pat is a retired circuit court judge. I was looked for um, to come and advise those who are being arrested and charged, and I went immediately to uh, Mountjoy Prison, um, saw them, and arranged for them to be medically examined uh, in the prison because they had been, they were each and all of them carrying um, um, marks of physical violence. 
and um, then I acted throughout uh, the criminal trial as their defence lawyer. In 1976, Pat was the main defence solicitor for the Salons trial. He remembers the day he first met them, when they emerged from Gar the questioning. They were all very shook up. I asked them and got general indication of what had occurred. I saw uh, marks and bruises on their bodies. What I was most anxious to was to make sure that they were professionally medically examined. If I had had the time and the opportunity, I myself would have, as I was my practice. See, that was that was standard at that time. Uh, as someone who was uh, detained and being questioned, the first thing you did was ask them to take their clothes off. Completely. And you physically examined them front and back, all over, to make sure there were no marks, bruises, scratches or whatever. And you noted that in your attendance. Um, and then you were able to compare that with what they presented at the end of their interrogation or investigation. Among legal circles, rumours were rife that there was a covert investigation unit within the Gardaí who were using very unorthodox methods to gain confessions. They acquired the nickname the Heavy Gang. There was undoubtedly a unit centred around serious and murder investigation squad in the country who were specialised in uh, uh, interrogation tactics and in investigating crime in that way. And Salins was one of the um, prime examples of their work. The existence of the heavy gang was consistently denied by officialdom. Using violence, heavy armed um, um, tactics within uh, interrogation and focusing on getting admissions rather than doing the standard good police spade work. I was actively working in criminal defence work throughout the uh, mid-70s right up to the mid-80s particularly. And um, uh, the same people were there and they worked in, in teams and you knew their names and every time a serious crime occurred uh, you went to the guard station, they were there. One guard I interviewed disclosed to me that he was a member of that gang, he admitted being in that gang and he would have talked to me about some of the tactics that they used. They were very, very violent methods, sensory deprivation, sleep deprivation. Um, one case that um, the retired guard I spoke to talked about how he would start trying to have a gentle conversation, often having a general chat about the GAA, which moved on to things where the individual in question disclosed that he I was claustrophobic and there was a large iron locker in the room, those small narrow ones, I certainly had them in school and he talked about putting him in there for 20 minutes until he, until he spoke. Um, so whatever was needed to um, get the end result, one man jumped from the second floor window just to get out of the room because of the severity of what was involved. Um, so that was how it was being experienced by people. But why these men? What was it that put Oscar on the police's radar in the first place? I um, was involved in, in various human rights issues. Everything that is now taken for granted, women's rights, travellers' rights. Uh, the issue, of course, of housing, international issues across the world, um, South America, Africa, all the uh, liberation struggles that were taking place, supporting those. And uh, that's what I did, and that fulfilled me. Oscar was socialist in his political leanings, but he also had republican ideals. 
He was the editor for the Starry Plough, a newspaper for the IRSPB, which was the Irish Republican Socialist Party. I was a young man who wanted to be a journalist, a campaigning journalist. Uh, that was the way I felt I could input most to human rights. I was interested in writing. My father was a writer and journalist. I was never involved in any paramilitary organisation or anything illegal like that. I was purely political. This is Kevin Healy with the news at 1.30. First, the latest developments, read now by Charles Mitchell. The trial has begun in the Special Criminal Court of four men who are charged with robbing mail from a train near Selbridge in County Kildare in March 1976. The court was told there'll be more than 100 prosecution witnesses. When the trial began, Oscar's defence solicitor, Pat McCartan, realised it wasn't just at police level where things were going to proceed without any solid evidence. It was, it was comical, it was pure pantomime. It was a remarkable uh, moment for me when, as their solicitor, eventually the book of evidence was produced. And I, uh, I immediately took it away and read it from cover to cover and said, there is no way that this case can stand up because the only evidence was their alleged admissions. There was not a scintilla, not a fingerprint, not one piece of forensic evidence, not a trace, not a piece of muck, nothing. And so you had those naked three statements as against what I knew to be their physical condition as they emerged from interrogation. Badly beaten, vouched by two medical doctors who had examined them. And I could not, under any pretext, reading that document say there was any basis upon which these people could be convicted. I could just not see it. I said, what is this about? how I was proved wrong. Yet the trial proceeded. The trial was in Dublin's Special Criminal Court, a court with no jury, only three judges presiding, who make all the decisions about guilt or innocence. Like the rest of this case, it was fraught with controversy and a time Oscar will never forget. The court case in itself was um, another zany situation where you had a court case taking place with three judges uh, one of them falling asleep during evidence and obvious to the world, this parody of a court case. Even to the point that on occasions, the barristers for the defence on occasions asked for breaks to take instructions, to use the bathroom, for no other reason other than to keep the judge awake and give the judges a chance to take a breather. We used to watch the judge falling asleep. We used to send notes down to our counsel the judge is asleep again. We would watch the uh, court um, clerks uh, watching the judge and when he fell asleep they would pick up large volumes of legal books and drop them on the tables in front of them to cause a noise to wake up the judge. But this farce is going on. There's journalists coming in and saying they saw, they wouldn't say he was asleep but he looked like he was asleep. I in fact told my barrister that if you don't deal with this I'm going to jump up in court and deal with it. And he came to us and said, no more of this charade. I should have a trial by 12 men and women. I don't. I'm having a trial of three judges and I want three judges. So he refused to allow the case affecting his position and his statement to progress any further until we dealt with this issue of the judge's sleep. So they raised in court the issue that one of the judges was falling asleep. We then went to the High Court to try and stop the trial on the basis of clear evidence that the man was not 
awake at all the times of the trial when evidence was being heard. And the High Court said they couldn't rule on it because the Special Criminal Court had already ruled that they could deal with it. In other words, the court being a tree-headed monster. And if one of them was gone, the two could still carry on. So then we took the Supreme Court and they, they castigated senior counsel for uh, taking the case and re- basically refused to entertain it, threw it out. Now, the judge in question was ill and was on medication and he died shortly thereafter. And there was a second trial. second trial was interesting in that I noticed that some of the guards were giving totally different evidence than they had in the first trial. So I would point this out to the counsel and they would question the guards. Uh, but you said in the first trial, you said the opposite. And on another occasion, I watched a detective reading his notes before he got into the witness box. And then he would be asked by our senior counsel, when did you last look at your notes? And he would say, oh, it's a long, long, long time ago now. And then we sent down a note saying it's in the inside left-hand pocket. He was able to say, could you empty out your left-hand pocket there, inside pocket? And then out would come the notebook and he'd say, uh, oh, I forgot it was there. So this there was just blatant perjury, left, right and centre. And it was unbelievable. Oscar was convicted and sentenced to 12 years penal servitude. A moment Oscar's brother Cormac will never forget. I was in the court that day and the court was cleared. Um... We went down the steps and we were rushed down the steps and people were kicked and woman one was kicked in her private parts by Garda. And then I thought, well, the, the last thing I can do now, since this will be the last time I'll see my brother, is to rush out on the street and try and <laughs> prevent the um, the Black Mariah from, from passing me. So um, I did that and there were two young Garda who restrained me. But I remember looking at my mother and she was just exploding bursting out crying on, on, a, on a car bonnet. So it was very tough. And then we had to go and um, give the news to my sister who was pregnant in um, Hollow Street Hospital, her first kid. And then go to school the next day and carry on as if uh, things were normal. How old are you then? 15. 15 and a half. While Cormac's world was being plunged into darkness, Oscar could already see a chink of light. The next step was to appeal. I knew my family would continue the campaign, which is what they did. Amnesty International declared me a prisoner of conscience. They said I didn't get a fair trial in the Special Criminal Court. Eventually, after numerous campaigns by civil rights groups at home and internationally, and appeals by Oscar's family, Oscar was released and his conviction quashed. When the appeal took place, one of the judges threw all his books down on the counter and said, on the table and said, I'm not going to be party to a man, an innocent man, uh, being in jail one minute further longer than he should be. And then they quashed my sentence and conviction, which means I have no conviction. Yet there's been no apology and there's been no investigation into how the false evidence was concocted and brought to court and so forth. While the appeal court quashed Oscar's conviction on the basis he had been a victim of oppression, the court never commented on whether the men had been tortured or abused whilst in Garda custody or had inflicted these injuries on themselves or on each other, as was claimed by the judges in the first trial. 
Even though Oscar was released and had his conviction quashed, and was awarded around £400,000 in a civil case against the state, the government still refused to label this a miscarriage of justice. But the question remained, how could this happen, innocent men? What were the powers that be that allowed this to happen? It seemed as though in the Ireland of 1976, conditions were rife for an approach to security by the state which backed a whatever-it-takes attitude. There were very troubled times. Um, there was a lot of uh, serious things going on in the country and the um, coalition government of the day decided that the Gardaí needed to be given a freer hand. They, they needed uh, to show uh, that they had a police force that were on top of the job, uh, that they uh, could um, deal with those who they say were responsible and deal with them effectively, bring them to court, bring them to justice, bring them to, um, uh, to book. Um, uh, other than that, it, it, it was suggesting of a state out of control without the security of um, an effective police force. The train robbery was the most audacious crime of the time committed in the country. The stopping of a mail train at night, uh, the absolute cleaning out of all of its cargo of money uh, and cleanly getting away, not leaving a trace. It was so professional uh, uh, an operation that it frightened the state to the foundation. And I believe that the Gardaí set about getting the matter solved, resolved, and giving confidence back to the people that they were on top of the job. Very much the same as what occurred in Birmingham, uh, in the wake of Birmingham and Guildford, where again, it looked like there was no stop to what was going on with the bombings on the mainland in England, and that, that the police forces and government there needed bodies, they needed um, uh, people to be reassured that the police were on top of the job. How does it feel standing in front of these buildings? Well, it's not pleasant. Back in Chancery Lane, I'm standing outside the Bridewell police station with Oscar, and he's clearly uncomfortable being here. As I've said to other people, the only part of these two buildings I like is the Latin above the front door, which says, Fiat uh, Justitia Rivat uh, Salium, which, forgive my pronunciation, which means, um, let justice be done even though the heavens may fall. And that is the campaign that I've been on since that day, uh, trying to ensure that uh, justice is done in this case, which is why I'm still, after 40 odd uh, years, still campaigning for a public inquiry into this. Maybe that would be a good place to drop in. What do you think, Derek? Yeah. Okay. It's the final day of recording in the studio and Cormac is laying down the last track on the Whistleblower album. Hopefully it won't come across and annoy the engineer. That's good. Okay. I'm at now the end of my journey. 
throwing myself into the the horribleness of it all and to allow myself express myself through my musical compositions has been hugely cathartic and therapeutic both in terms of the sadness in the music but also acknowledging the human spirit the ability to overcome the difficulties of trauma whilst acknowledging that it will always remain with me but it doesn't have to define me but it has left its mark i will always have to deal with it it's part of me and it's a question of how i do that uh, without the healing powers of music i dread to think where i would have ended up For years I've been hoping some Garda or someone connected to the Garda would come forward and apologise or at least acknowledge what happened, even if it was anonymous. Every so often I imagine someday I'll get a letter. Dear Cormac, I've heard of your whistleblower project. Forty years on, I still can't find the courage to say sorry for the part I played in the confessions, charging and conviction of your brother, Oscar. We knew he was innocent at the time and still know so today. I let myself down. I let some of my Garda friends down. I also let my family down. It's up to others to reveal their part in this conspiracy to cause a miscarriage of justice. But after all this time, perhaps it won't happen. But I don't mind telling you, I've had my own share of troubles throughout the years. I also don't sleep well. I have nightmares. Perhaps it's our suffering that connects us. Someday, I will speak out, but not yet. I can't. It is still too soon. I hope you understand. An unnamed Garda. That's the letter I didn't get. It's the letter I want to get. If my family and I are to get some closure... An apology is not only needed, but it's essential if there is to be any lasting healing. <laughs>